Finishing sharp, pointed, and insightful. This is Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Let me tell you what happens to most of the southern border is that in the middle of the night, a sentry goes off on a trail leading from Mexico to the United States, and a border patrolman stands on that trail waiting to take that on. Doesn't know if it's an illegal alien for a job or a drug smuggler has a lot of guns. We've had border patrolmen killed on that border. While we slept last night and had dinner with our families yep. and watched football, these brave men and women are on the border. If we find that it's uncontrollable, Josh, if we find that it's um it gets to a level where we are going to lose control or where people are going to start getting hurt. We will close entry into the country for a period of time until we can get it under control. The whole border. President Trump set to make two campaign stops in Mississippi today for Republican Senator Cindy Hyde-Smith ahead of tomorrow's Senate runoff election. The president tweeting about Hyde-Smith, quote, we need her in Washington. So what exactly is at stake in Mississippi? Cindy has voted with me 100 percent of the time. She's always had my back. She's always had your back. And a vote for Cindy is a vote for me and make America great again. And now, Stacey Washington. Hello, hello, hello. I'm back. (laughs) You were maybe wondering where I was. Well, I was right here, but not in this particular space because... I had some time off. I, it was Thanksgiving, and we were so excited about Thanksgiving. I, I, and when I say we, really, honestly, I think my husband and the kids were normal level of excitement. I was, I was like extra, super excited. And so consequently, you know, I told you about my adventures with our double oven and all of that stuff. But in spite of all of that, God showed up and showed out, and we had a fantastic Thanksgiving holiday. And I had some time off, which was just like energizing. It was, it was so good. And now we're back. And so we have a jam packed program for you today. We are going to be speaking with Peter Wallison. Um, he's a senior fellow over at the American Enterprise Institute. He's the author of Judicial Fortitude, The Last Chance to Reign in the Administrative State. He's going to join us to talk about that book and about how Congress has really abdicated their duty to maintain the constitutionally guaranteed representative republic it's not a democracy it's a republic that we currently enjoy so what we want to do is talk with him we'll have him in the second segment we're also going to be talking about this big uh it's it's still a story and i'm kind of surprised by the the legs of this Uh, and when i say that i'm speaking from the position of having lost a a school board election now a lot of people would say oh you know you how does losing school board compare with losing a gubernatorial election? Well, in some people's minds, it doesn't compare, but it does give me a little bit of an insider peek into what it feels like to knock those doors and run a campaign and really have a lot of people relying on you to win and then to come up short. Uh, and so we're going to talk about that a little bit. Stacey Abrams, she's embarrassing herself. And then we are also obviously going to talk about the trending story of the day. The uh, Gallup polling shows that, even more so than ever before, the illegal immigration situation is the number one thing that Americans would really like to see rectified. And so we're going to talk about that, the president's threats to possibly close the border permanently, to possibly close the border indefinitely, at all in response to this horde of migrants that have arrived at the southern border and are really, they're planning on coming in here whether you like it or not. Uh, and so we're also going to talk about 
Independent abortion clinics in the U.S. closing at an unprecedented rate and a California agency taking nine years to create a fire map and how PG&E in California has actually they, they bear a huge amount of responsibility for what we're seeing in the way of the wildfires and uh, especially the campfire. And when we look at the loss of life and the death toll there, we are we're, we're in perilous times because lobbyists and government types have really taken over. They've got a grip, a stranglehold on certain parts of the government, especially in California. And now we're seeing people die. And so a lot of times you hear people say, especially on MSNBC and CNN, they'll say, people are going to die. If you don't let migrants in, they'll die. If you don't, if you don't start saying men or women, your people are going to die. If you know, you name any old crazy thing, they'll say, well, if you don't do it, then people are going to die. Well, the truth is that if we don't start to figure out how to decouple the lobbyists and PG&E from the people who make the decisions about what to do about fire remediation and, and really the preventative steps, not after there's already a blaze, but beforehand, years before that, the planning and the execution of trimming and keeping uh, vegetation away from power lines, et cetera, et cetera, that has to happen before the fire or there will be fires. And then what? Who's being held accountable is my question. Who's going to be brought up before congressional hearings and charged with being responsible for the deaths of all of these people? Who's going to be held responsible for the fact that they don't have enough highway out there in California for people to properly evacuate because they're so busy preserving the wildlife for some special spotted toad and all that stuff? There's a lot here, a lot that needs to be to to be unpacked. We'll get into that. And then, of course, you may have heard, but I'm celebrating the fact that Mexico has finally woke up and smelled the coffee, and they're planning on deporting approximately 500 migrants for storming the U.S. border in Tijuana. Now, here's why that's important. They have, previous to this, just waved at migrants as they pass through their country. Oh, you're heading up to, well, stop in and have a bite to eat. You know, spend some of your, you have any money? Do you need some, some flip-flops? You need some sandals? We, we respect you. Okay, adios. Now they're going to have to start taking responsibility that, for the fact that they're basically the superhighway for people from south of their country to get into our country. That's wrong. That's absolutely wrong. We've got to put a stop to it. So... Now I want to get into our daily encouragement, and today's daily encouragement is Psalm ninety twelve. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. I think this scripture is so important for today. And look at my cool little scripture card that I got off of. If you if you're watching the live stream, or if you I might take a screen grab it that's put up on Instagram. This is a little scripture card. I've got a bunch of these. They're so cute. And I bought them on Amazon from a woman who she makes these and then you can buy them in little packs and you can share them with friends. I, I tape them to my daughter's dashboard when she comes home to visit. Um, so <laughs> they're, they're really cool. Um, I should share the link. I'll share the link on the Facebook page. And by the way, at Stacey on the right on Twitter and Instagram, AFR.net and UrbanFamilyTalk.com. So uh, teach us to number our days. So what is, what, what's the point here? Well, I think Probably people in California who are currently living in Walmart parking lots might wish that the PG&E representatives and the government types who are responsible with created, for creating the fire maps might have numbered their days. In other words, taken their responsibilities seriously and actually applied themselves to the task at hand, the task they were assigned and paid to do, the thing that they are responsible for, the thing that they should be held responsible for not doing 
which is creating the fire maps. Now, this applies to us in every area of our lives. And we all, my fingers up in the air, because I am just as guilty as anyone else, have some area in our life where we're like, I'm not sure what I should do here, or I don't know how to handle this, or this, this problem's too big, or whatever the case might be, you're not exactly up to snuff where you need to be in that area. When it comes to the work that we're assigned and paid to do, when we don't do that work, other people are impacted. But more than that, if you're working in a place where you're supposed to create a fire map, and then that fire map is going to be used to help with remediation to make sure that there's, there aren't fires, then your lack of due diligence, your refusal to do your job that you're paid to do actually results in people dying, people losing everything that they've worked so hard to accumulate over the years. And, you know, we, we all know we're just travelers here. We're just passing through. But that doesn't mean you, you should not take care and do your work and other people lose their homes. That doesn't make that okay. There is no excuse for what we're seeing out in California and we're seeing it in Washington, D.C., what we're seeing at the southern border. When you look around this country, of an epidemic of people who have a job that they're assigned to do, and instead of doing that, they're taking gifts from lobbyists. They're going on trips paid for by lobbyists. They're maybe uh, receiving extra contracts or promises of more lucrative jobs when they leave Congress, when they leave that elected position, when they're no longer the county executive or the municipal uh, executive, when they're no longer the mayor, when they're no longer the director over fire maps. These people and so many other millions of Americans who aren't doing their jobs, are it means other people will die. When you look at the list of illegal immigrant crime, kidnappings, rapes, murders, violent assaults, drug dealing, those are the result of people in this country who are tasked with a certain job to do, refusing to do what they've been paid to do. That goes for Congress. And so in a lot of ways, and I know this is not popular, and if you're going to email me, my only warning for you is that if you send me a nasty email or a condescending email, what I do is I, I blacklist your IP address. So I do read it, so you will get your point across to me, but then I'll never hear from you again because your stuff will automatically be directed to my junk, not the junk folder that I clean out, but the one that I never see. So just be careful if you're planning on criticizing things that I say on the show that you do so in a direct but kind manner because if I sense unkindness, condescension, or if you go full liberal, full liberal moron, and you insult me or threaten me, you're getting blacklisted. So I never hear from you again. And, and it's really, so you, you haven't bothered me at all. Okay, PSA aside, we're talking about a serious situation. And it's all over the country. It's everywhere. And so what can we do? We can number our days. Teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Also, so that we won't be held accountable for people dying because we did or didn't do something we were supposed to do. And then, because people think they're getting away. The executives at PG&E aren't getting away. The people who work in those government agencies in California, they're not getting away. They may never be held accountable here on this earth for what they've done. Same with con congressional members who refuse to fund the border wall, who refuse to do something about the Flores decision, who refuse to reform our immigration system so that it accurately reflects what Americans want, which is less legal immigration and the end to illegal immigration. When they don't do what they're supposed to do and they think they've gotten away with it here, the Bible also says we're not to covet the wicked. We're not to covet what they have and we're not to look at them longingly and say, 
wow, I wish I could get away with that because no one is getting away with anything. The judgment seat is real. It's at the end of your life and it's going to be there for every single person, whether you believe or not, whether you are in the game or not, whether you read the scripture or not, whether you go to church or not, no matter what it is that you think you're doing, you think you're getting away with, you think you're putting the wool over somebody's eyes. No one is fooled. God is not mocked. If you're responsible for people dying and losing their homes and losing everything they've worked for, if you're responsible for that, you will be held to account. So the best thing to do is address ourselves to the word, teach us to number our days. That's where we just pray to God and say, Father, please don't let me be responsible for anybody losing anything or their lives. God, please teach me to number my days. Please give me a heart of wisdom and please show me where I am down and out, where I'm lacking, where there are holes, where I'm not meeting the mark so I can meet it because I want to meet you at the judgment seat and here, well done, my good and faithful servant. Here is your reward. That's what you want to hear because it's going to be a rude awakening for those who think they're getting away with something. And we can't be happy about that because we're talking about eternity here. Yes, the lives and the possessions a tragedy, but eternity, that's the real game. That's the real deal. So who knows the power of your anger? Your wrath matches the fear you are due. So teach us to number our days that we may present a heart of wisdom. Return, O Lord, how long will it be? Have compassion on your servants. Deuteronomy 32, 29 says, if only they were wise, they would understand it. They would comprehend their fate. Don't be those people. If you're not where you need to be in your responsibilities, especially if you are a public servant and people's lives rest on what you do, repent and begin to do your job correctly. God's word says he will restore what the locusts have eaten. The time that is behind you is behind you. Step forward and do your job now because there is no escaping the accountability for your job. There is no escaping it. You may for a moment experience the relief of feeling as if you have not been held accountable or if it's not your fault. You may convince yourself of that. You may be able to look yourself in the eye in the mirror, but you're still going to be held responsible. And I think it is, it, it, it is absolutely ludicrous, but it's also a result of the people of California. And God bless the Republicans and conservatives out there who are doing their best to try to elect God-fearing people. But the people of California have made a decision that they're going to go with ungodly leadership and people who lie for a living. And now the repercussions of that are coming back 10,000 fold. And it is so disheartening to watch. Let's not be those people. Let's be responsible and number our days. When we get back, we're going to have Peter Wallison. Stay right there. Every day in preborn centers across the country, young women in crisis find refuge. Here's Roxy, nurse director for preborn at the Crisis Pregnancy Center in Southern California. A lot of them come to us and they feel rejected, they feel alone, they're in a crisis situation, they don't know what to do, they don't know where to start. We believe that sharing the compassionate love of Jesus Christ is what really makes what we do work. Through love and compassion, Young women facing tough situations get to meet Jesus Christ and their unborn baby on ultrasound. And I got to hear and see my baby for the first time. Hearing the heartbeat made me cry. 
and it was certain that I was going to keep my baby forever. For $140, you can sponsor five ultrasounds, and you'll receive a story and a picture of babies' lives that were spared. To donate, dial pound 250 and say the keyword baby. That's pound 250 and say baby. Or go to preborn.com. Hi, I'm Crawford Loritz with a Legacy Moment. My youngest son, Brendan, is a tremendous baseball player. In fact, he had many scholarship opportunities after high school. He could have gone on to play baseball at a number of different schools. Karen and I noticed that in the last part of his junior year in high school and all through his senior year, he developed a real passion for evangelism. God used Brendan to share his faith with a number of his friends in school, and many of them trusted Christ as their Lord and Savior. So it was no surprise when Brendan came to me in his senior year and said, uh, Dad, I, I believe God has called me to lay baseball on the altar. He went on to study at Moody Bible Institute, preparing for full-time Christian work. God calls us to place everything before Him as a sacrifice, an act of worship. Nothing in this life belongs to us, including our plans for the future, our gifts, our talents, our hopes, and our dreams. They're all on loan from God. Listen to these straightforward words in John chapter 12, verses 24 and 25. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Whoever loves his life and loses it, and whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Did you hear that perspective? Jesus says that we must never come to him asking him simply to endorse what we want to do. God calls us to embrace the obscurity that Jesus had to embrace so that we can produce heaven's results. Well, here's what I want you to remember today. Don't fight God's call to lay aside your interests and ambitions for the sake of Christ and His kingdom. It's a sacrifice that's worth making. More information about the ministry of Crawford Lorenz can be found online at livingalegacy.org. You can watch a live stream of the show on Facebook or YouTube at Stacy on the Right. Now, back to the show on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. Welcome back to the program. Thank you so much for being here today. It's fantastic. It's Monday, and I'm so excited to speak to our next guest. We are going to be chatting right now with Peter Wallison, Senior Fellow from American Enterprise Institute, author of Judicial Fortitude, The Last Chance to Reign in the Administrative State. Peter, thank you for joining us today. My pleasure, Stacey. Thanks for inviting me. You know, I'm excited about talking to you about your new book because we just, in the first segment, we're talking about the responsibility that people have to execute their jobs. And we see all over the country the fruits of people not doing their jobs well. And in your book, you explain uh, how rulemaking by unelected officials and the lack of oversight by Congress and the judiciary branch have resulted in an administrative state. Why did you write this book? Well, I've been very concerned about the direction the government has been going for quite a while. Um, we are a democratic republic, which is which, as the frame, framers developed it, was intended to be guided by the people um, through Congress. The people were supposed to vote for their representatives in Congress. The representatives in Congress would then make the laws, and those laws would be enforced or executed by the executive branch. And that's the way it ought to be. But the way it has turned out 
is that Congress has been delegating a lot of authority to the executive agencies. And those agencies have basically been making the rules we're living under. Now, the agencies are not elected. Um, and if we continue to have this structure in this country, we are headed further and further away from a democratic republic toward a system in which unelected officials are making the rules for us. So we have to find a way to stop this, to bring it back to a point where Congress is making the, the laws and the agencies are simply executing them, not making the rules themselves. Mm. So I, I'm, I'm right there with you. I think the book is very timely and, and it's something that Americans should really, we, we must acquaint ourselves with this because without oversight, most things kind of go to pot pretty quickly, if, if you know what I mean. Like if no sure. one's looking out to find out, is this person doing what they're supposed to do? Is this agency doing what they're supposed to do? Is this program that was funded and is going on indefinitely actually doing what it was stood up to do? And so there are a few things that you mentioned in the book, specifically the Supreme Court's 1984 Chevron v. NRDC decision. Can you explain that to the listeners? Yeah, the, uh, that decision was a very important one, probably one of the most important since the New Deal in the 30s. And what the court said there was that when a, uh, a, a lower court, one of the lower courts, is confronting an agency that is arguing that it has the power to make a certain rule, the, the court should defer to the agency's judgment on that question if the court thinks the agency is acting reasonably. Now, that turns the whole idea of what the judiciary is supposed to be about on its head because, basically, the court's should be making the decision about what the laws that Congress has made have conferred on agencies, what kinds of powers the agencies have received from the laws Congress has made. The agencies themselves should not be making that decision. Obviously, anyone who um, is a judge, in, in, in a sense, a judge in his own case, can't be... Um, can't be uh, objective. The agencies want as much power as they can get, and if they can interpret the laws that Congress has given them in the most open-ended way, they will have more power. So that's the, the so-called Chevron decision. And one of the things that the Supreme Court can do today to stop the constant growth of these agencies and their, and their power is to reverse or eliminate the so-called Chevron decision. Now, we are very fortunate right now because we have five people on the court who are uh, constitutionalists, and that includes the two who were appointed by President Trump. Um, uh, this is the Gorsuch, Neil Gorsuch, and, of course, Brett Kavanaugh. They have, they have been added to the three who are already there, and I think that they would be pre uh, prepared make this very major change in, in uh, the, the uh, jurisprudence that covers uh, the agencies right now. So I'm, I'm excited to see them there as well. They seem as if they're um, 
they're of a more classical kind of view of the Constitution. They really don't see it as a living, breathing document. And with those two, um, my hope is that they would actually drag the court further to the right and kind of temper the influence of Justice Roberts, who is definitely a, a conservative, but is much more like he's he's drifted to the left a little bit. And by the left, obviously, it's the middle for him. But we don't need another uh, a Kennedy. We w- What we really need is solidly Republican minded judges who are going to see the Constitution and really judge based on what the Constitution says and what the founders meant the judiciary branch to actually have control over. Um, So how does this administrative state overall, how does it undermine our representative democracy? When when we talk about it in in this way, this representative republic, I I hate even using the term democracy. Um, When we're talking about that, we see the effects of it all over our country, but maybe we don't connect it to, to the fact that we don't have control over the administrative state. Well, I think many people, many people who are perhaps listening to your program, but many people throughout the country have found that um, they, their property, for example, is subject to um, regulations from the federal government that uh, they had no um, way to affect. Uh, for example, the Clean Water Act gives the uh, Environmental Protection Agency a tremendous amount of power to control how rather small bodies of water, uh, including farm ponds and streams and things like that, um, are, are um, maintained. Um, and people are puzzled by that. But the reason that has happened is that Congress, instead of debating and approving this kind of thing, which, which would give an, uh, people an opportunity for input to express their own views about it, handed over to this executive agency, the EPA, the power to make these decisions. And so when people complain to their congressmen or their senators about the fact that um, some of their property is burdened by these kinds of rules, they're told, well, I, I didn't do that. I didn't vote for that. The agency did that. But the agency was only acting under authority that was given to them by Congress. And so what we have to do is make sure that the lim- that Congress, when it provides these powers to agencies, uh, limits them appropriately and, o- and provides only the powers that the American people have voted for. Um, if, that isn't, if that isn't the way our system is going to work, then we are going to have um, not a Democratic or Republican or, de- or, or, a, or a representative system, as you would call it, we are going to have a system in which the rules are made by a group of people who live around Washington, D.C., have their own priorities, but those priorities are not the priorities of the people of the United States. So let's talk about these uh, these priorities. Uh, so let's say what we've seen President Trump roll back the, you know, the, the waters of the United States rule or whatever that was with the, you know, you got a little pond on your property and the government's telling you can't drain it off or fill it in. He's he's rolled that back and thank God for it. But how do we as citizens, what practical steps can we take to solve the problem in in besides just electing people who say they want to do something about it? What else can we do? Well, the important thing is to understand how the problem can be solved. And that's why I wrote the book, because the the, the book explains, I believe, uh, in a way that people will understand that the only way 
uh, to solve this problem is to get the Supreme Court on the side of uh, interpreting the laws the way they were written and not as administrative agencies wish to have them interpreted. And if we can get enough people uh, in support of that simple idea, the court can do it. Because the way the system works, if the Supreme Court makes a decision, all the lower courts have to abide by that decision. And it might take some time for everyone to fall into place. Um, but once the Supreme Court makes the decision, as they did in the Chevron case, the wrong decision in my view, all the other courts started to follow it over time. So the only way that we can get this done is to have the Supreme Court say that all laws made by Congress must be interpreted in the first, in the first instance by the lower courts. The lower courts have to interpret the language that co- Congress used and make sure that the agencies do not go beyond that language. If, if we can get that done... Um, then we have a way of reducing the number of regulations and rules that are coming out of these agencies every year. In fact, over the last 25 years, since 1993, in every year, the agencies have issued more than 3,000 rules and regulations uh, for a total of over 101,000 rules and regulations in that period. No one can possibly know all the regulations and rules that we now live on because the agencies continue to put out these regulations and rules because this is what they think is good for the American people. But the American people have not decided that that's good for them. It's the agencies who are deciding, and they're unelected. So I, I, think, I think a lot of Americans have an have a, have a idea of how that's working. And I think one of the things that's most frightening about it is when we see uh, – you know, in any kind of movement to change it. And you see people who work for the government kind of knit, they they kind of form together in one of those sci-fi conglomerates, like a unimind, and they vote to maintain their power. This is a really, this, this, this problem is huge. It's why you wrote the book. Obviously, it's a problem that needs addressing. But it is is it really just getting a couple more conservatives on on the Supreme Court? And is this on the the kind of the radar of the current Republican administration? Well, <laughs> if enough people read the book and write to their congressmen and senators about the book, uh, I think it will be. Um, I, have, I have great hope that um, there are these five constitutionalists. And incidentally, let me talk about Roberts here for a minute because you mentioned him. Mm. Um, I know there's a lot of skepticism about what he has done, but there are two different ways that the court operates. First, it interprets the it interprets the laws and it interprets the Constitution on the one side. On the other, it interprets the structure of the Constitution, and that is the separation of powers. And what we are talking about here is the separation of powers between the legislature and the executive. And what the judiciary is supposed to do is make sure that that, that separation of powers is preserved. Uh, and if we can get the court, and 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 I want to, I talk especially about Roberts here because in recent cases he has said that it is important for the court to make sure that the 
uh, the various branches stay within their assigned roles and not go outside it. And what he means by that is that Congress should not be delegating to the agencies, to the executive branch, any powers that the framers wanted kept in Congress, which is the, the power to make the laws. So I, uh, Roberts may have made the wrong decisions uh, from many people's perspective on some of the things that interpreted laws, um, such as the, uh, the ACA, the uh, Obamacare. But on the question of the structure of the Constitution, he seems to be very firm. And that's where uh, the changes that I'm talking about in the book would occur. Um, the court would make sure that Congress continues to make the laws, the judiciary interprets the laws, and the executive only enforces or executes the laws that Congress actually adopts. Fantastic. Well, I think uh, people can definitely see why this is an important book, why you wrote it, and why we should all take this task and add it to our to-do list, which is to contact our congressmen and let them know, hey, we, we, need, we need oversight. We need more constitutional judges, and we need you guys to um, fulfill your duties. They're, they're down on the job, and they're not getting it done. But you are, and we really appreciate you coming on the show today to talk about your new book, Judicial Fortitude, The Last Chance to Reign in the Administrative State. Peter Wallison, thanks for joining the show today. Thank you, Stacey, and good luck. All right, thank you. Um, I'm 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 with him. That that's a that's a fantastic uh, kind of second point or you know addition to what I was talking about in the first segment. We're going to be held accountable. We're, we we have no escape. There is no escaping it. And I think it's especially it's like you're putting a, a you know two angry hands around your own neck when you say you know what I'm going to do? I'm going to run for Congress or I'm going to go get elected to some position. And then you get there and instead of executing your duties, you spend your time enriching yourself and having fun and, you know, jet setting around with people who have more money than you do. And before you know it, your term is almost up and it's time to run for reelection. And now you owe a whole bunch of people. So instead of being able to go back to your home district and say, hey, look, I ran on this, you know, I said I was going to do these 12 things. I did eight or I did six or I did two, whatever you did. And then here's the other ones I want to work on. If you send me back, send me back. I'm going, I'm still, I'm still working on this stuff. Instead, they come back and they're like, government's too big, but their people are, that's why it's, it's part of the reason that the house of representatives under Republican control was effective in a couple of areas, but largely ineffective in the areas that the president ran on. And a bunch of people retired because they knew they couldn't play ball in the new game. The new setting was, it wasn't a setting they could work in. So they retired. I'm glad to see them go. But the American people also spoke. You don't get to keep that job if you're not going to do what you ran on. When we get back, we'll have your calls. This is Just a Minute with Stacey Washington. It's not getting a ton of attention, but the wall at our southern border is actually under construction. Arizona will have 32 miles of short, ineffective vehicle barrier replaced in April of 2019. This replacement wall will stop pedestrians and vehicles from illegally crossing our border. Another area under construction in the Rio Grande Valley of South Texas will add 18 miles of new wall to stop illegal entrance finally filling in those wide open spaces. Environmental laws are the main hindrances against utilizing the $1.5 billion allocated by Congress to move forward with wall completion. 
Under the Illegal Immigration Reform and Immigrant Responsibility Act of 1996, DHS can waive all legal requirements if needed. It's good to finally see some movement forward. The Republican-controlled Congress must fully fund completion of the border wall at the president's requested amount of $25 billion during the lame duck session. It's the least they could do. I'm Stacey Washington. Find out more at StaceyOnTheRight.com. We live in a day when America's families are under attack like never before. Buddy Smith, Senior Vice President of the American Family Association. The war against biblical principles rages on numerous fronts. The internet, Hollywood, Washington, D.C., America's corporate boardrooms, and the list goes on. At American Family Association, we're committed to standing against the enemies of God, the enemies of your family, and we recognize it's an impossible task without God's favor and your partnership. Thank you for being faithful to pray for this ministry, to give financially, and to respond to our calls for activism. What you do on the home front is crucial to what we do on the battlefront. We praise God for your faithfulness, and may He give us many victories in the battles ahead as we work together to restore our nation's biblical foundations. The week ahead. Listen up, shoppers. Didn't get enough on Black Friday? Get your credit cards ready because we start the week off with Cyber Monday. The term was coined back in 2005, and every year Americans continue to spend more and more. If you'd like to get the Christmas cheer started before December, the famous Rockefeller Center Christmas tree lights up Wednesday in New York City. Topping this year's holiday tree is a spectacular Swarovski star. The 9-foot, 4-inch showstopper covered with 3 million Swarovski crystals. Live performances will be from 7 until 9 p.m. Eastern. Expected to perform Diana Ross, Tony Bennett, and John Legend. And chocolate fans are in for a treat this week. Thursday is National Chocolates Day. Milk, dark, white, have it all. History shows reports of solid chocolate appearing around 1829. Before that, chocolate only existed as a bitter beverage and was not sweetened. First chocolate bar made its debut back in 1847. And that's a look at this week's short but festive week ahead. I'm Jack Callahan, Fox News. Welcome back to Stacy on the Right on American Family Radio and Urban Family Talk. All right, how important is Mississippi? And then I got to roll. The Senate race. Uh, if you care about judges, you care about tax cuts, you care about a strong military, vote for the Republican. The Democrats going to take us backward, the Republican to keep us on track. Welcome back to the show. That's Lindsey Graham telling Sean Hannity that, uh, you know, we got to definitely, you know, not let this whole thing go down the way we think it's going down. So uh, I'm I'm really pleased with the way the president has been able to work around a, a ineffective Congress who refuses to do anything and the laws that are arrayed against him, the same laws that George Bush and Barack Obama operated under and nobody had a problem. But now because it's Donald Trump, it's like, you know, catastrophe. Everybody's going to die. Yeah. No, no one. No. Yeah. People are maybe going to die if they're breaking the law and they get into these melees. One person was killed over the weekend down at the southern border. Um, but that that wasn't due to people dying because of something that Americans did wrong. Uh, so call lines are open 866-963-2037, 866-963-2037. While we're working on callers, if there are any on a Monday, we want to get to this story about Stacey Abrams. Now, 
you might be saying, well, she lost. So what? You know, who cares what she says? But I think this is really important because we see this over and over and over again. Uh, you know, we, we love Ann Coulter here on the show. She's been on the show before. And she was making the point recently that this is a Democratic tactic. It's a tactic that the Democrats often use. When they lose a race, they, they say that the race was illegitimate. When they win, it's a mandate. It's a blue wave. It's a tidal wave. It's a, it's a you know, smackdown. It's people coming to their senses. They have really great marketing. But it's, it's not true. We're now looking at Kemp, Governor Kemp. He's Governor-elect Kemp. He has bested Stacey Abrams by 50,000 votes, if I'm, if I'm getting this right. She is here talking to Jake Tapper. And I, I want you to listen to this because it's instructive for all of us. We can get carried away. It's, I don't care what your political persuasion is. I don't care if you're a Bible-believing Christian, you know, praise God. If you're not, come join us. The, the water's fine. Any person who's a human being with a beating heart, you know, hot-blooded, whether you're American, French, you could be any uh, nationality. We can all get carried away. It has nothing to do with politics. We can get so into what we're doing and really into ourselves that we get carried away. And that's what we're hearing here with her. She's not ready to let the spotlight go. She's not ready for the cameras to turn off or turn to someone else or something else. She's intimately interested in continuing to be the center of attention. Not only that, but she had no reckoning for what she would do after if she lost. And this is important. When, when you're running for office, whether it's, you know, elected sheriff or, you know, head of your PTA or PTO or governor of the great state of Georgia, you have to have a plan for if you lose. Let's say you lose. So are you saying your life is over? Stacey Abrams, did you have any friends? Did you have any joy in your life? Did you have a family? Did you have a career? Were you someone? Were you a person before you started running for this position? If so, why can't you go back to being that person? Or are you the only person who could ever be the, the governor of Georgia? Once you ran, you basically locked that position down. No one else can hold that spot. Listen to her embarrassing herself with Jake Tapper. It's number four. The law as it stands says that he received an adequate number of votes to become the governor of Georgia. And I acknowledge the law as it stands. I am a lawyer by training and I'm someone who's taken a constitutional oath to uphold the law. But we know sometimes the law does not do what it should and that something being legal does not make it right. This is someone who has compromised our systems. He's compromised our democratic systems. And that is not appropriate. And therefore, my mission is going to be to make certain no one else has to face this conversation. Going forward, we are going to ensure that there are fair fights in the state of Georgia and that voter protection is more than a slogan, that it is actually a common cause that cuts across partisanship. Because as I said, there are Republicans who were harmed, Democrats who were harmed, independents who were harmed. And that is wrong in one of the original 13 colonies, one of the founding blocks of mm -hmm. our democracy. And I want Georgia to be better. Georgia has to be better. And the only way Georgia can be better is if she keeps on acting like the election wasn't held and it wasn't legitimate and that she's got to do something about it. So Jake Tapper didn't fall for it. You know, sometimes he's just dead on. I want you to listen to him ask her. This is an important question for her to acknowledge because this is what sent Democrats over the edge when they thought Donald Trump running against Hillary Clinton that she might win and he might say, 
No, you didn't. They were so scared he might do that because they knew it would throw the country into turmoil and that it would be the wrong thing. And he was talking about voter fraud, which is a real thing and it's a legitimate concern. But when he brought it up, it was not legitimate. Do you see the double standard there? See, I'd be fine with it if if you're fine with people questioning the results of an election and it's okay if Republicans do it and it's okay with Democrats do it, then, you know, go ahead and hold that opinion. If you're not okay with anyone questioning the legitimacy of an election because an election is an election and it's done and it's over and if you won, you won. If you lost, you lost. I'm fine with that, too. But you can't say it's perfectly fine for Democrats to question the result of an election and to promise to fight to change laws so that this never happens again. In other words, so that no Republican ever beats a Democrat again. Or, I mean, come on now. Only Democrats can question the results of an election. I can't, I can't, I can't with this chick. So listen to Jake Tapper. He actually asked her the question. He started off with it. He ends with it. It's number five. Is he the legitimate governor-elect of Georgia? He is the person who won an adequate number of votes but that's to not, become the governor of with all With all due respect, and I respect where you're coming from, and I respect the, the issues that you're raising, you're not answering the question. Do you think it I was... Am, I am. No, do, I, would well, I not he, do... You're not using the word legitimate. Is he the legitimate governor-elect of Georgia? He is the legal governor of Georgia. She would not say legitimate. And... I think it's, you know, obviously she says she has some concerns with the process and that uh, she says that Republicans were disenfranchised. I I haven't seen any Republicans say they were disenfranchised, but perhaps there were some uh, problems with with how things were done. But her refusal to say he's the legitimate uh, governor, it, it this 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 is real. This is where she literally rips off. The mask, the mask where she's a lawyer by training and she's just trying to make sure that no one else is disenfranchised. At the end, when she couldn't call him legitimate, she rips that mask off and shows us that really she's a sore loser. She's someone who, you know, regardless of the impact that it has on women who run after her, black women who run after her, black lawyers who run after her, you know, lawyers who run after her, anyone who runs after her as a Democrat, she leaves that stain of, well, He's he's not legitimate. 50,000 votes. What what more does he need? Uh, I'm sorry. I know he needs a stamp, a rubber stamp from Debbie Wasserman Schultz. I'm sorry. She's not in charge over there anymore. Uh, Tom Perez, Mr. Potty Mouth of America. We need a stamp. Kemp needs a stamp from the DNC. And if he doesn't have that, if he's not DNC approved, then of course he's not legitimate. And. So her sore loser stench is going to hang around for other people to have to put up with because she just can't go quietly into that good night now that she's lost. I mean, look how many other people have gotten pundit jobs. All those Bernie Sanders people, Simone Sanders, uh, Mr. Harlan. uh, there's There's a ton of people who, after Bernie Sanders lost the nomination, they went on to have viable careers in punditry, on on cable news. They opened businesses. They've run for other offices. They've worked on other campaigns. This is not the end of her life. Now, I know, you know, let's face it. She was running, and there were a lot of people who thought she had it in the bag. Oprah was campaigning for her. They knew she was going to win, and so they'd already started treating her like she was the governor. They were already kowtowing and bowing and scraping to her, and she got a little taste of that power. And, and believe me, you only have to have someone kind of defer to you and basically, you know, kind of it's an acknowledgement that you're somebody. And 
that's a rush. That feels amazing. And so if you don't have people in your life to kind of bring you down and look, we've we've seen you at your worst. You're just a regular person. Don't get ahead of yourself. You don't have people in your life like that to make sure you don't lose your own head and get it inflated like a helium filled balloon and start floating off into the stratosphere where you can't think and you can't see and you can't understand the reality that is everyday life. Because I don't care who you are. Donald Trump still has to go home to Melania Trump every night and she's seen him at his worst. She's the, the grounding mark for him at home. He goes home and I, I believe she's his big, biggest supporter, but she's also his wife. And, and that's our role as wives is to support, but also to help ground. And for Stacey Abrams, her husband should be playing that role. But, you know, who knows if he's able to, because maybe she's already floated away. But this is, in my opinion, embarrassing. I believe that if she carries on in this manner and doesn't let this go, this is going to become something that later in her life she will be extraordinarily embarrassed by, that she could not let this election go, that she could not acknowledge that she lost and go home to her own house and shut herself in for a few days and cry about it and punch a pillow and you know drink hot tea, have the girls over, watch some stupid sappy movies and cry and let it go. Go home, read the cards and letters from supporters, smell the flowers and the bouquets, look at the small gifts and tokens from people who really wanted her to win, but she just didn't, and start to work through and grieve that loss. I lost the election. I'm not going to be the governor of Georgia this time and go on with her life. She's going to regret it because if you don't do that, you get stunted. You get you basically stop right there. It's like you put a pin in it, but instead of saying, I'm going to go back to that and then move on, you, she's just stuck right there. And that's where she'll be. She'll be there, the failed gubernatorial candidate, constantly railing about elections and, uh, you know, how it just didn't work out. Kind of like Hillary, constantly talking about how white women in the suburbs failed her. This group failed her. Men failed her. Bill failed her. He didn't fail her. She's, she's blamed everybody in the kitchen sink. She's, she took a little bit of acknowledgement for herself, but not nearly enough. And she never went away. We haven't had a break from Hillary Clinton. And, and uh, sad to say, it looks like we're not going to get a break from Stacey Abrams. It's a mistake. So we can all look at it ourselves. We can say, you know what? Um, this isn't going to be me. Because losing is a part of life. It shouldn't be the only part of life, but it is definitely something that if you're, if you're going for anything, if you're doing anything that's a gamble, if you're taking outsized steps, you're, you have the opportunity to fail. And there's nothing wrong with that. You know, there's something about when, when you lose, you know you gave it your best effort. You did all that you could do and you lost. And so... That's not what God had for you, but you do have the experience that you lost, that you can work through that experience and you can grow from it and it makes you a better person. And then when you do win, because if you do it right, if you lose correctly, you set yourself up to win. And then when you go for it that next time, whether it's the same thing or whether it's something else and you win, you are wiser, you know more, you're better for the loss. She's missing out on a great growth opportunity. But more than anything, let's just be real here. How tired are we of listening to her whine about this? As Americans, do we not have bigger fish to fry? 
she is going to constantly beat this dead horse forever because she lost? I, I just think it's pathetic, honestly. So we have just another couple of minutes here. I want to go over this information about the Californian agency that um, took nine years to create the fire map. Now, this is, I just, like, this is one of those things where you just think to yourself, nine years? So Governor Brown had vetoed a measure that tried to get this agency off the dime. Governor Jerry Brown is a California state agency charged with overseeing the utility companies. And they took nine years to develop a consistent statewide map designating areas at high risk for destructive power line fires. Now, I know, uh, you know, at least directly about this here in our state because we had, it was kind of the opposite. We had a, it was, I don't know, like nine, 10 years ago, might've been more, where we had a freezing snowstorm. And so all of the trees had, and you, you probably, if you remember this nine or 10 years ago, you might've seen the pictures out of the Midwest all over social media. It was these pictures of trees without their leaves and everything because it's the middle of the winter and they had a coating of ice on them and it was gorgeous. Like all of these bare trees, the limbs coated with ice and the ice is frozen and then there's snow all over the ground. It was an ice storm of epic proportions. What wasn't great about it is that that ice storm and those frozen branches that were connected to power lines meant that power lines froze and some of them snapped. Some of the trees actually fell over from the weight of the ice on their boughs and fell on power lines. And so there were, yeah, I don't know, 40, 50,000 people without power. And it took a long time to get the power back up because it wasn't a matter of waiting for the ice to melt or something like that. It was literally snapped, broken power lines that had to be repaired and it's freezing temperatures and they didn't have enough crews to get the work done. After that, Amran Yui went on an extensive tree trimming like across the entire state. They started in the metro area and they worked their way out. We've never had that happen again. We've had freezing storms, but we've never had it happen again. And I just got my notice. They're going to be out by my house trimming trees away from the power line. And they should be doing that in California to stop fires. But they're not. I wonder why. All right. If you're leaving us, God bless from the heartland. If you're sticking around, you got news and information from onenewsnow.com.